We're in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read this to us, and then I'm going to break down the five sections we're going to pull out of this passage. Uh, Therefore, the Hebrew writer says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, like I told you in the time uh, at the beginning here, we're going to break this down into five sections. And here's the five sections we're going to break it down into. We're going to deal with the cloud of witnesses. Who are they? Can they see us? Or are we watching them? We're going to look at throwing off sin and entanglements. We're going to look at running with perseverance. We're going to run. We're looking at. We're going to look at running the race marked out for us. And we're going to look at fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, here's the five again. We're going to look at the cloud of witnesses and who are they, and whether we're looking at them or they're looking at us. We're going to look at throwing off sin and entanglements. We're going to look at running with perseverance. We're going to look at running the race marked out for us. And we're going to be looking at fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, I'll tell you, we're not going to do it all in that order either, though. So, the first thing we're going to do, though, is deal with these cloud of witnesses. Because it says here, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these cloud of witnesses, here's the question. Are they watching us, or are we watching them? Yes. Yes, and actually, you're going to find that it's actually a little bit of both. Now, for years, I've always looked at that as they were watching us. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. Actually, the word translated witness could mean both. You know, you can witness something and watch it, see it happen. Or you can witness to something and testify about it or that you saw it. You know, witness can mean both ways, watching it or testifying to it. And this same word is used in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Go ahead and turn there. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. In 1 Timothy, this word is used as people watching. Here Paul is talking to Timothy. And in verse 12 he says to him, Fight the good fight of faith, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And here the witnesses are watching. It's the same word. But let me show you another place here in the book of Hebrews actually. Chapter 10, verse 28, you'll see that the word witness is used in both senses in the same verse. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, look what it says. He says, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now again, these witnesses saw them do whatever they did and told about it. So the question is, as we look at these cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by, are they watching us or are we watching them? Because remember the whole chapter 11 of Hebrews has been a testimony of their testifying, if you will, of a life of faith. Through their lives, through their obedience, through their faith in God, they have been witnesses to them. And in a sense you could almost picture that the Hebrew writer is saying to watch them because remember, the Hebrew writer is saying, as we're going to get to in a little bit, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now it's almost like he's saying, since we've been watching these men and women of faith over the last chapter, since they've been testifying to us as witnesses of what a life of faith is, 
At some point, he tells us to now fix our eyes on Jesus. That is one possibility. There's also the possibility, though, of we see the picture of running the race. And that they might be in the grandstand watching us run the race, cheering us on, if you will. And so for years, I've kind of only seen it one way. I want to show you that scripturally, it's really both. We'll get to in a second, and that's going to be a really fun study to to deal with. Can people in heaven see here? But for now, I want you to understand that the purpose of the Hebrew writer was to write chapter 11 to encourage the men and women in the the, uh, Christian church there, the Jews, who were struggling persecution. Remember, they had lost their property. Some of them had had been uh, uh, outcast or whatever and ostracized. And he's used the Hall of Fame of Faith, men and women of faith, to encourage them as witnesses to them of men and women who have been able, through worse stuff, stand up under faith. So they are witnesses that we are to watch. Yet at the same time, I do believe that the Bible teaches that they can see here. Now listen closely. I don't know for a fact that those who are in heaven can see everything. That's a hard one for me to wrestle with because the Bible does talk about how there's no pain and sorrow and that kind of thing in heaven. Yet, I'm going to show you a lot of examples of the fact that it appears, at least for times, that those who are on the other side in the spiritual realm can see what's going on in this realm. And I'll get right to you, Allison. In the same sense that you know that, uh, you know in the Bible we see that there are times that those in the physical realm are able to see the spiritual realm. You know, Elisha's servant had his eyes open and he could see the chariots of fire. There are times that uh, Abraham was able to see the visitors, you know, that came. There are times that God will open the eyes of those in this realm to see the spiritual realm. It appears from Scripture there are at least times that those who are in the spiritual realm are permitted to see what's going on here. Go right ahead. Scripture tells us that we see through a glass darkly. Now, they're already up there. They see through Christ's eyes. So why would there be tears if they are to see and know how it's all going to come to fruition in the best way? Well, and I can see that. But we also have to admit the Bible says that we grieve the Holy Spirit. So there's still times that God... Again, he's not disappointed because if disappointment involves surprise, you can't disappoint God because he knows everything. Yet at the same time, there's, there's grief. And you're going to see, as you see, there actually are some evidences where there is some sorrow on the other side. So let's just take a look at that. Let's just take a look at those, those examples. Uh, go to uh, Luke chapter 15. We're going to start with the angels, first of all. In Luke chapter 15... Look at verse 7. Jesus said, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So we definitely know that the angels can tell or know when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and they celebrate. But does that mean that people that have died and gone to be with the Lord, can they see? Well... Go to Revelation chapter 19. Look at verses 1 through 5. Now remember, the book of Revelation, John has been taken up into heaven. He's able to see things in the spiritual realm. He's also able to see what's going on on the earth. And in chapter 19, he says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting... Hallelujah. 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, all you who fear Him, both small and great. At this point in the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation period, those in heaven, believers as well as angels, are able to see the destruction of Babylon and religious Babylon. And when her smoke comes up, they what? They celebrate. They praise God. That's, that's the church that's received the glorified bodies that have the... Uh... Right. I said, we're talking about those who have gone to be with the Lord in the presence of God. Right. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Right. The saints. The church. Right. The saints. Yeah. I'm not talking about people that are in hell. I'm talking about people that have passed from this life in faith. But when do the, uh, the Old Testament No, I said believers and the, and the angels. When do the Old Testament saints Old, their... Old Testament saints don't get their resurrected bodies till. Until the, the the at the end of the tribulation period. So, so they can't see. Uh, I didn't I didn't say. Uh, it, 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 sounds like, uh, it sounds like you're putting the Old Testament saints and the uh, church no. in the same category. No, I'm not putting the Old Testament saints in the, in the church in the same category at all. I'm saying from this passage, we know that the church can see what's happening on the earth. That's all we're going with. We can't take it any further than that. We know from this passage that the church sees the burning of Babylon and the destruction of religious Babylon, and they praise God because of it. Here we see a picture of those who are in heaven, the church at this time, seeing what's happening on the earth. Again, whether they can see all the time, I couldn't tell you. But I'm also going to show you an interesting example of the fact that I think the Old Testament saints are still able to see what goes on. And I'll show you, and we'll get to that one in just a second. Let's keep going. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. Look at verses 9 through 11. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the, soul, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each one of them was given a white robe and were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Here are tribulation saints, people that are killed during the tribulation, saying... How long do you avenge what's going on down there? And God says, wait a little bit longer. Wait a little bit longer. Now, you get a, I'm going to just throw something out to you here. I actually just preached up in New England at, at a conference center who in their years past, whether the, the, the conference center itself uh, believes in this anymore or not, I don't know as a whole. I know there are individuals that still do uh, that, that, that come from a background believing in soul sleep, that everybody sleep when they die, they go to sleep until the resurrection at the end. Well, the problem with that is, is these people who are dying during the tribulation aren't asleep for sure. They're awake. They're alive. They have feelings. They, they know what's going on on the earth. Here's a perfect example of the fact that the Bible doesn't teach soul sleep. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be meet with me in paradise. Uh, alive. Breathing, if you will. You know, alert. So for those who kind of have over the years taught, very few do that anymore. But there are those who taught for a while that there was a thing called soul sleep and everybody just stayed asleep until the very end and that's when they were resurrected. Uh, but let me give you a couple of other examples. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. 
Look at verse, look at verse 10 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Again, we see the picture of the fact that what's going on in the church, what's happening on the earth, is definitely in this instance manifest to who? The angels, the, the spiritual authorities, demons, demons and angels. You know how the Bible says angels long to look into this relationship that we've been given? So again, we definitely see in the angelic realm, the angels see what's going on on the earth. We see a glimpse every now and then that it appears that those who have died and gone to be with the Lord can see. And here's one of the best examples of it. Go to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 31. Twenty-eight through thirty-one, Luke chapter nine, verses twenty-eight through thirty-one. This is when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to a mount, onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as flashes of a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, Old Testament saints appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about His departure, which He was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. It very clearly appears that Moses and Elijah know what's going on on the earth and what's happening. And it's almost like God allows a couple of Jesus' friends to come down and encourage Him. Moses and Elijah, I believe, have been with God. They haven't gotten their resurrected bodies yet. They get those at the second resurrection. That's when they'll get their resurrected bodies. Just like those who are with the Lord right now don't get their resurrected bodies until the rapture. And so, whether you have a resurrected body or not, I believe that spiritual beings still can see and experience and have emotion. Lazarus and the rich man, they recognized. They could see each other. Or at least, definitely, the rich man could see Lazarus. There was emotion. There was feeling. And so... Even though you don't have your resurrected body till the rapture, or uh, the Old Testament saints don't get theirs till the end of the tribulation period, you can. I believe the Bible leans toward the fact that those who are in heaven can see what's going on. Definitely, we know the angels can see. That's a no-brainer. The Bible doesn't go into tremendous detail about this, but it appears that in some way, those who are in heaven who are believers, whether they've gotten their bodies yet or not, can see what's going on at least a time or two. Whether it's like God, and I'll get right to you, read it. Whether it's like the, how God does it now, where He lets humans every now and then see the other side as an encouragement. He may do that as well. So could this cloud of witnesses be watching us? Yes, they could be, but we don't know for a fact. We do know that we're to be looking to them and watching them as witnesses or testifying what a life of faith looks like. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. And they may. The Scripture doesn't clearly teach either way. But from these glimpses, it definitely Samuel, when he was brought up, he knew what was going on on the earth. Even told Saul what was going to happen next. You know, kind of a thing. So there's definitely evidence of the fact that it appears that they could let's, let's see once in a while. Whether they see all the time, can they see everything we do? I don't know. The Scripture doesn't say, and we're dangerous to go beyond that. Have there been glimpses? It appears that God gives them glimpses to what's going on down here. 
And this word translated witness could mean that they're watching or it could mean that we're watching them. It's been used both ways in Scripture. Now, whether that solves anything, don't know. But I can tell you this much. The cloud of witnesses, we are definitely... this. If you were to ask me which way I lean, I would lean more to, toward where to be watching them. We're to be watching them as an example. And they're to be witnessing to us what a life of faith is. Because it's very clear that's what the whole chapter of 11 was all about. And he says we're to then fix our eyes on who? Jesus. Jesus. It's been an encouragement to see these men and women of faith. But in order for us to continue, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now what I want to do though is I want to jump to number 4 of the list that I gave you. And we need to look at number 4, which is running the race marked out for us. Because in order to understand the rest of the sections of this passage, it will really help us to understand this section. It's important for us to understand that not all of us have the same course, even though we're in the same race. And it's important for us to grasp this, because there's a tendency in Christianity to try to make everybody the same. You know, I was talking with a man uh, just, just today who was telling me in tears as he was grieving for the people who the Hurricane Irene has already done damage to their place. As much as we're worried about whether or not it's come here, we need to be broken for the people that it's destroyed there. And you know what? That sounds real good. But I had to look at him in love and say, I understand what you're saying, but you have to be real careful that you don't expect every Christian to be as broken as you are over the people that have lost. Because... You know what? We, have to, we definitely need to have empathy. But are we all to go help them? Are we all to... You see what I'm saying? We, we can have compassion for the people in Haiti who had the earthquake. Were we all supposed to go down there and do a mission trip? Or were there some that God chose to go do a mission trip? Were there others that God told to pray? Were there others that God told to give? We have a tendency in Christianity, when we believe something, and we know God's laid it on our hearts so strongly, He must have to have them do it too. And I want to show you scripturally that that has never been taught. That actually we need to run the race marked out for us. And that's been one of the things that actually has hurt the church is the fact that we have lost sight of some of these things that Jesus has taught all along. The first one we won't go to scripturally. You can look at it later if you want. In Matthew 25, in the parable of talents, he gave one five, another two, and another one, each according to their ability. Were they all expected to produce the same? He gave one five, another two, and another one. Now, again, as you've heard me say before, this isn't for us to determine whether or not I'm a five, you're a two, or someone else is a one. We'll never know whether you're a five, two, or a one. But God told us that for a reason. Why? So that we wouldn't compare ourselves and expect everybody to be the same. How often have we had the evangelist come into town who was maybe gifted as a five, if you will, in sharing the gospel. And he got up in front of our church and said, if you would work as hard as me, you could be a five, two. It's kind of what he said, isn't it? Follow my method, do it like I do it, and you need to be out there winning people to Jesus just like I am. Well, we need to have a concern for the lost. We need to be willing to share our faith. But each of us need to run the race marked out for us. Let me give you a couple other examples. Go to John 21. Look at verses 17 through 22. Starting verse 17 of chapter 21, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Folks, one of the things that's going to hinder your walk with the Lord is worrying about whether or not God's been fair in your life. Well, how come my spouse died and -and so-and-so's hasn't? How come I've been wanting to have a child and we can't, yet the teenager in the backseat of the car on his first date gets pregnant? God, how come I've worked my heart hardest in my life and I never moved up the ladder, yet this person just falls into money? We, when you start comparing the race that God has for everybody else with yours, it's going to pull you off out of the abiding relationship. Run the race marked out for you. There's more examples of it. Go to Matthew 20. Look at verses 1 through 15. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard. I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired going to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only an hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us and who have borne the burden of their work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give this man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Did he treat everyone fairly in our estimation? Not even close. But you know what? As Paul said, who are you to say to the potter, as clay to the potter, why have you done this? Yeah, why have you made me this way? Folks, I'm telling you, it will actually free you up to follow Jesus when you stop letting the church tell you what you're supposed to look like. But follow Jesus and as He teaches you from His Word and His Spirit lives within you and guides you in how He would have you live your life. Too much, we're still walking around saying you need to dress this way and you need to talk this way and you need to... And we try to tell each other how they're to run the race. Lord, tell my sister to help me, Martha said. In other words, I'm in here busting my fanny and she's not doing the work. And Jesus said, I didn't tell you to do the work either. But what was her attitude? 
That's not fair. She needs to be helping me. And folks, the church has been full of that for too long. And we've missed the fact that we're to run the race marked out for us. James was beheaded. And this pleased the Jews. And so Herod had Peter arrested. He was going to put him to death too. What happened to Peter? Angel released him, came, woke him up. He didn't even know if it was a dream or real until he's out of the city. The chains fell off, the door flew open, and he walked out. How come James was beheaded and Peter got released? How come John the Baptist, whom Jesus said of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist? How come he lost his head? Folks, I'm telling you, don't try to figure it out. Stop trying to think that God will be in our estimation fair. He is just. Run the race marked out for you. I like that scripture says, I'll have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy, and I'll show compassion upon whom I. This world is about God. It is. It's not about us. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. I could go into this in a lot more detail, but I think we're getting the idea. Let's just end up with this passage here. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For the gra- By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many different members or different parts, and these parts all don't have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If any man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Do you see that? Run the race marked out for you. But what are we done? We say everybody needs to be a teacher. Everybody needs to be a giver. Everybody needs to be a leader. Everybody needs to be a, an intercessor. No. Run the race marked out for you. And once they, that finally starts to sink in, it will help you in your walk with the Lord and it will also help us dealing with the next thing, the number two thing that I pulled out of our list. Throwing off the things that hinder and the sin that entangles. Do you see how there's two things there? Look at what it says here in the second part of verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. There's two things here that he points out that we need to throw off. Things that hinder and sin. What I want to deal with is the fact that actually there are things that may hinder your walk with the Lord, your following Jesus. They may be good things. But the Bible says in following Him, running the race marked out for us... There may be things that God asks you to put aside that aren't bad. You understand? But God says, for what I'm doing in your life, I'm going to ask you to lay that aside for now. Now again, don't let man tell you what that is. That's up to your Lord. But let me give you an example of a few. Let me, just, let me take you to Luke 18. Look at verses 28 through 30. Luke 18, verses 28-30. This is right after the rich young ruler goes away because he had great wealth. And Jesus said, it's hard for a rich person to enter into heaven. And Peter, I love Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, we have left all we had to follow you. In case you didn't notice. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Do you see that? Those who have put aside, if you will, home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, are are those bad things or good things? Those are all good things. Doesn't the Bible say that he who finds a wife finds a good thing? Doesn't the Bible say that children are an honor and grandchildren a glory? These aren't bad things. To have a home is not a bad thing. But there are times that in our following Jesus, God may have us lay aside. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I won't take you to 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, which Jesus talks, Paul talks about it and Jesus talks about it. Jesus said there are some who have been designed by God to be eunuchs, to be single. There are others who were made that way by man. But each needs to kind of find the lot in life that God's chosen for them. Paul says, look, he goes, well, my opinion, I think it would be better to stay single. But if you've got to get married, you're not sinning. But, you know, you can really serve the Lord if you're single. But if you want to get married, it's not a problem, you know. He's, but are there times that God would say to someone, I want you to remain single? Yes. To follow me? There are times that God may do that. Again, getting married is not a bad thing. If it were a sin to get married, there would never be any Christian babies. Do you understand? That's where we have the danger of taking it too far and turning everything into a law. And unfortunately, there are times that God may say to you, for what I'm trying to do in your life, I want you to not watch television. There may be that God says to you, look, alcohol in and of itself is not a sin. The Bible's very clear that it's not. But He may say to you, for the sake of what I'm trying to do in your life, I don't want you to drink. That's the way it is for me. Again, I would be wrong, though, to say that you shouldn't drink either. The Bible says to be drunk is a sin. But the Bible doesn't say to have a drink is wrong. But we have to be led by the Spirit of God because there are some things that God may tell you that aren't sin that He wants you to set aside. Things that hinder your walk with God. Is this thing a bad thing in and of itself? No, but for the sake of what God's trying to do, He may have you set it aside. And who's the only one that can tell you what that is? Only the Holy Spirit, only Jesus Himself. But too often man has said, if you were as good a Christian as me, you would say no to this too. I remember one time Becky and I were, we were, just, we were fairly new, newlyweds. And uh, we were in seminary in New Orleans. And we went on a date to this restaurant. We had saved up and we went to Harold's Texas Barbecue. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I know how to treat a girl. Alright, so... There was, there was a man in the back of the restaurant sitting there reading his Bible. He had a big old Bible, and he was sitting there reading it by himself, and it was all marked up. And We had ordered our food. We were waiting for it to come to the table, and I said to Becky, please, can I go? I know we're on a date, but can I please go? I want to go talk to this guy. And she goes, you're going to anyway. So, so I left her at the table by herself, and I went to talk to this man. I just said, I love seeing people read their Bibles, and I just want to encourage you. What an encouragement you've been to me. And come to find out, he was the owner of the restaurant. It was Harold himself. And he said to me, I'm a prophet. And I said, okay. He goes, I know when Jesus is coming back. I said, the Bible says nobody knows that. He said, oh, you're one of those scoffers. 
He said, because you're a scoffer, I won't tell you the day. I'll just tell you the year. Now, I'll be honest with you. At this point, my curiosity's peaked. He then went through a rapid study with me to show the difference between the us's and the, the them's. And, sorry, the us's and the we's and the they's and the them's. And it was amazing how this man knew the Bible. Yet... He told me that in a vision, God had given him that it was in 1996 that Jesus was going to return. He said he knew what day, but he wasn't going to tell me that because I was a scoffer. But while he was telling me all this, he pointed over at Becky, whom he saw was with me. And he said, you need to get rid of things like that that hinder you in your walk with the Lord. I said, that's my wife. <laughs> yeah. I said, that's my wife, not my girlfriend. He said, oh. And I had left the, oh, what kind of a prophet are you? Alone. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe Jesus came back for Harold in 1996. But he was so full of how he thought things were, he had become judgmental of everyone around him. Because how it was supposed to be for him was how it was supposed to be for everybody else. And there's a tendency for all of us to be that way. God may tell you to stop eating lunch on Wednesday and fast during that time and to spend it in prayer and Bible study. And you know what? I can guarantee you, if God tells you to do it and you're obedient, He will bless you during that time. And you know what your natural tendency is going to be? Sue, you need to stop eating lunch on Wednesday. Because I'm growing in my walk like you wouldn't believe. And You need this. We have a tendency to just assume that what God said to us what about Peter? I mean, what about John, Peter says? You just told me how I'm going to die. I feel a whole lot better if you tell me how he's going to die. And Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive, his life, I, you run the race marked out for you. Now, folks, as soon as we start letting Christians be whatever God's wired them to be, the healthier the church will be because we'll have different parts instead of everything looking the same. We'll stop having people doing everything because they feel guilty because someone's got to do it. And the kingdom of God will start to move forward and you individually will enjoy being a follower of Jesus Christ because you're now functioning according to what He's got for you. And it feels good to do what He's got for you. Don't do what He hasn't got for you. We need to throw off the things that hinder. And only the Lord will tell you what that is. We're not going to deal a whole lot of time with, with about sin. You hopefully understand that the Bible does teach, though, that there are things for all of us that are no-nos. The Bible's pretty clear on that. And you see how the sin is described as stuff that easily entangles. For those of you that did go to First Merritt Island's website and listen to that message I challenged you with last week, you know our flesh does not want to do the will of God. And we can't do the will of God apart from Him. But I want to take you real quickly on how to throw it off. Because it says throw off the sin that we so easily entangles. How do we throw it off? There's a lot of different ways. I'm going to show you something that you might not have ever seen in the Lord's Prayer. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Go to verse 12. Now as you're turning there to Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer, who are we to be praying to? The Father. Our Father who art in heaven, remember? Alright. Now, keeping that in mind, look at what Jesus teaches us to pray in verse 12. I'm sorry, not 12, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation. Wait a minute. Who are we praying to? And Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father, don't lead me into temptation. Now James chapter 1 verse 13 says that God the Father judges, tempts no one. 
God does not tempt, but listen to me. The Bible teaches that God controls whether or not you are tempted. The reason why Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father, don't let Satan tempt me, is because God controls whether Satan can or can't. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, if you were to look at it, jump real back to chapter 4, verse 1. Look closely what it says. And Jesus was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of His ministry. Look what it says. Then Jesus was led by who? The Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Who does the tempting? Satan does the tempting. God doesn't tempt anyone. But God controls whether or not Satan is able to tempt you. Remember, it said in the the beginning of Job, chapter 1 and chapter 2, Satan wasn't able to do anything to Job unless God gave permission first. Satan can't even tempt you to sin unless the Father has given him permission. And that's why we're taught to pray, Father, lead me not into temptation. In other words, don't let him tempt me. But then there's the second part. But deliver us from the evil one. In other words, if you choose to let him, would you give me the victory? Because sometimes God lets Satan tempt us. Why? Very good. You remember from last week. God puts us to tests to show us what He already knows. Peter said, I'll die for you. I won't deny you. Jesus says, you really don't know yourself like I know you, Peter. I still love you and I'm going to use you. But you've got to understand that you're not all that you think you are and I need to let you fall on your face to see it. And Sometimes God brings us to a test knowing we will fail the test, but it's for our best because then we know what He already knows and who we really are. And sometimes God allows Satan to tempt us. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Passage most of you probably could quote, but I want you to look at it closely. There's three promises in this one verse. It says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In other words, don't think that you're the only one that struggles with this. Whatever it is that you're being tempted with, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Whatever it is you're being tempted with, other people are being tempted by it as well. Secondly, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you see that? God controls the level of temptation and whether or not you're even tempted. If you're being tempted, it's not something you can't win against because God said He wouldn't let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. So in whatever the temptation is, even though you keep losing, God knows that you don't have to lose. It isn't something beyond what you can bear. But look at with the temptation, when you are tempted, He will also provide a way so that out so that you can stand up under it. God controls when you're tempted, how much you're tempted, and with it, He's even provided the way to escape. How does it, why does it seem like God is intricately involved in our temptation? Because He is. To conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Satan is his tool. Satan, Satan is God's... Well, Erwin uh, Luther at Moody Church preached a sermon one time called God's Satan. He's used of God for his purposes. He's used of God for his I mean, Could he not have already put him in the pit? Why isn't he in the pit now? Because God's using him for his purposes. And when he chooses, he'll be bound. And after that thousand years of him being bound, he'll be released. Why? For his purposes. He's God's Satan. And even though he's the enemy of God, and he's evil, God uses him for God's purposes. Why do 
hurricanes and earthquakes happen. We don't know fully, but we know this much. God uses all things for His purposes. So, folks, in this race marked out for you, you need to throw off the things that hinder. And only God will tell you what those are. They may be good things. But He may say to you, that's not what I have for you in this life. And I'll reward those who have given up houses or land or homes or wives or children. For those who have laid those things aside in this life, I'll reward them in the life to come a hundred times as much. But also we need to throw throw off the sin that so easily entangles. And how do we do it? We daily realize that if we're going to sin, it's us that's done it and not God's fault. But God is the one who controls whether or not we're tempted. And in it, He'll provide a way to escape. And He's there with us. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Well, isn't that what He says? Well, we're about to get to that. But let's deal with number three. Run with perseverance. Just recently, God's opened my eyes to something that I've known was a problem in the church, but it hasn't really made sense until just recently as I was doing this study. Have you noticed that a lot of the latest strategies and schemes for growing your church quickly are all focused on the sprint? Get there quick. The Bible teaches that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we're to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Don't be in a hurry. God's not in a hurry. Yeah. He's the one who's going to, we're going to see in a second, He's the one who's going to finish what He starts. We sometimes feel like we need to hurry up and get there in our walk, and you'll never hear God say hurry up and get there. As a loving parent, He's just going to deal with you where you are. In time, He'll move to whatever He wants to deal with next. You need to run with perseverance. This is not a sprint. This is a contest, though. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 real quick. First Corinthians nine verses twenty four through twenty seven. So don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. He doesn't say that in our race only one gets the prize. The Bible teaches many will be rewarded for their faithfulness. But we're to run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, meaning the Olympic Games, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. Remember, it's made out of, out of leaves. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. We see a picture again of throwing aside the things that hinder. But folks, run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Stop trying to get there in a hurry and believe that God will get you there as you rest in Him a day at a time. Uh, go back to Hebrews chapter 10. You'll see, the Hebrew writer has already said this to us. In chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. Right before he goes to the Hall of Fame of Faith, he says, Don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. This Hebrews 10, verse 35. Verse 36 now says, You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what He has promised. 
For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I won't be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. What does he say? You need to what? You need to persevere. Keep going. See, it's one of the cool things about a marathon. We really don't ever remember who won. Do we? What's the bigger issue with the marathon? You finished it. Right? It's not like everybody stops running when the first guy from Kenya crosses the line. Right? Does everybody else go, oh man, I thought I was going to win, but I guess not. No, they know the guy from Kenya is going to win. And when he crosses the line, they don't all stop running. They keep running because the issue is not who won. The issue is who finished. Remember the parable of soils? Seed fell on the rocky soil, sprung up. But when trouble came, it went away and didn't come back. Why? It didn't have root. Seed fell on the thorny soil, sprung up. But when the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choked it, and it died. Why? It wasn't real salvation. But the seed that fell on the good soil produced. Did that seed also have the same sun? And Yes, but it hung on. Now listen. Yeah, it's their race. That'd have been somebody else. Every now and then it's nice to run into somebody else on a marathon, I'm sure, and say, hey, I'm glad I'm not the only one out here running in the woods. But, right, I, I don't run them either in that sense. But listen closely. You may trip and fall in this race. Actually, the Bible says you will. Getting up is what marks you, not the falling. I'm going to say it again. You are going to trip and fall in this race. Getting up is what marks you as a follower of Christ. Not the falling. Falling is going to happen. Oh, Peter, you're going to deny you even know me. Before the rooster crows. But I'm not bothered by that. When you return, strengthen the brothers. My brother, you're going to come back. You're going to be alright. You'll get there. And when you raised your children and they said, I can't do it, I can't drive, or I can't tie my shoe, you would say, you're going to be alright. You're going to be alright. You'll get there. It may take a little more time, but we'll get there. Why? Because you saw the finished product, and that's what you're more worried about than whether or not it happened right now. Run the race with perseverance. And here's the last part. And folks, I cannot wait to show you this last part. I have never seen this in the way that God opened my eyes to this. We're now, as He says, to fix our eyes on who? But look at how He's described. How is he described? Right there. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. What? Did, folks, you need to meditate on that. Remember I've been teaching you to meditate on the Word of God? Take a section of Scripture and just say it over and over. Think about it. Allow the Spirit of God to teach you. If Jesus is the author of your faith, that means He what? He started it. If He is the perfecter or the finisher of your faith, that means He's what? He's the one who's going to finish it. Is it up to you? No, thank you, Jesus. It's not up to you. It's up to Him. Our goal, our goal and our role is to focus on Him, to trust in Him, to rest in Him, to seek Him for our daily bread, to go to Him and say, lead us not into temptation. But if you choose to let Him, please deliver me from the evil one because my victory is only through you. Lord, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I don't want it in my flesh, but I want Yours. Your will be done on this earth. Lord, You've got to do it. 
And if we live our lives with our eyes focused on Him, we'll then come to realize, He said in Philippians 1.6, what does Paul say? Con- being confident of this very thing, that He who began this good work in you will what? He'll finish it. The only reason some fall by the wayside is they never started. That's the answer to that whole, well, what about those who professed but they didn't finish? The Bible says they never had it. Because if He starts it, He'll finish it. The only way you'll find out, by the way, whether or not you're really His, besides the indwelling Spirit that gives you the peace that passes understanding and the Scripture making sense to you as you study it, is that you stay in the race. Now, look at what it says next, though. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Alright? What was the joy set before Jesus? Has that ever, have you ever let that really sink in? The joy set before Jesus, and it's us, and it's also the glory that He was to receive. He was God before, going to be God afterwards, but in the Scriptures, and we're going to see it, there's an element where He's even glorified more after what He did on the cross. But it's more than just the glory of what He has coming to Him. It's also that we get to be with Him and be glorified with Him. And folks, i got to be honest with you, I still don't understand it. But let's look at what the Scripture says. Go to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to show you five verses that we are passages that deal with this and I really want you to look write them down and look at them some more later on Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 it says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. But being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place, and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Look closely. Because of Jesus' obedience, because of His willingness to take on a human form, because of His willingness to take the role of the servant, God has now exalted Him to the highest place. Now, in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, we uh, sorry, not chapter 11, but in chapter uh, 1, I think it was, we saw where he, everything was subjected to him. And then, of course, the Hebrew writer says, not God the Father, it's himself, but everything else has been subjected to Jesus Christ. Part of his, the joy set before him was the fact that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Jesus will be the one who's glorified in heaven. Now, there's more to it, though. Look at John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, there are two passages here I want you to see. Verses 1 through 5, and then verses 24 through 26. Jesus is praying in the garden right before the cross. And in John 17, verse 1, he says, after, it says, After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. 
There's two aspects here again. Father, I can't wait. It's been tough living in this human body for a while. The time's come. Glorify me with the glory I had before the world began. But also, what does he say? I brought glory by, by bringing, completing the work you gave me to do. Which was, what was the work you had given him to do? Not dying for our sins in order that what? We could go be with him. Look at what it says at the end of the chapter, verses 24 through 26. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Do you see it? Jesus' glory is not just the fact that we'll all go worship Him, but that somehow we will be with Him, see Him in His glory, and be glorified with Him. It's mind-blowing. The joy set before Him was us. And the fact that we get to be with Him for eternity, it gets even better. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 4. The Hebrew writer even started the whole book off this way. It says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Catch that. He's heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Alright? Everything has been given to Jesus now because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of what he's done on the earth. But at the same time, he's provided purification for sins. Look at now what it says in chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. That's where we're going. He's the heir and we're co-heirs. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him, meaning Jesus, Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to Him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Folks, has it even sunk in a little bit for the fact that when we get to heaven... God's design is that Jesus will be glorified and somehow we will be glorified with Him as His treasure, as His co-heirs, as you were saying. Listen to Romans chapter 8 real quick. 
Verse 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also what? Share in His glory. How many of you feel worthy of that right now? We're not. He's the one who's worthy. He's the one who lived without sin. He's the one that was suffered separation from the Father. He's the one who was crucified on the cross. He's the one who did it all. We sin. We don't always obey God. We don't run the race with perseverance at times. We are the ones who look at everything else but Jesus. We're the ones who are doing it haphazardly, yet because He's the one who is doing it, and He's the one bringing us to Him, and He's the one who started what He's done in our life, and He's the one who's going to finish it, somehow, some way, He's going to reward us for eternity for everything He's done, and all we can do is sit there and say, Thank you. Thank you. Yet we've been told that running the Christian race is up to us. You've got to do a better job. You've got to try harder with all that He's done for you. You owe it to Him too. And the focus of our preaching has been on us. It's time we start putting the focus back where it belongs. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Will I run the race perfectly? No, but the Bible says I'll finish. Yeah, but I'll finish because He'll finish. He'll finish for us. I'm going to finish because He'll finish us. Yes. Listen. When you sin, do you spend all your time focusing on you and beating yourself up? Don't we? When the Bible says that what we're to do is to acknowledge apart from you, I can do nothing. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, I don't even understand it fully. He said, now that when I sin, it's not me doing it, it's the sin living in me. Does that condone we can live however we want? No, no. We'll get to that in chapter 12. Don't try to run down that road and say, well, it's not my responsibility. Oh, a loving father will discipline his children. We'll get to that in a second as we get to the further part of the study. But for now, understand that even though you're not the one who did it, the joy that was set before Jesus was you being with Him for eternity. And the Bible says in Jude verse 24, if any of you ask me what chapter, I'll know you never read Jude. There's just one chapter in Jude. Listen to verse 24. To Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages and now forever and forevermore. Amen. A lot of times I used to think that when I got to heaven, God was going to say, yeah, you're in by my grace, just go. He's going to present me with great joy. And not only that, without fault, pure. What should be our attitude? Worship. Worship. And faith. Believe that God will do what He said He would do. And when you stop trying to help Him and believe that He'll do what He said He would do, watch the change that happens in your life when Jesus is manifest. But too many of us at this point have been told by the preacher to go live for Jesus. I'm going to say to you, stop living for Jesus and believe that Jesus who is in you will live His life a day at a time by faith. 
since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. People who have evidenced the life of faith before us. And who may be watching, we don't know. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you won't grow weary and lose heart. And let us do what 19 says. Hallelujah. <laughs> Salvation. And glory. And glory. All and belong, honor, to him. belong to Him. Power. And That's it. Unto the Lord our God. You got it. And not be ashamed of that. Uh, you got it. That got it. It ain't about you, folks. It's about Him. Father, thank you again for the way in which your word, as we take the time to let it speak to us and allow you to teach us, the way your word just keeps pointing everything back to you. Father, forgive us for being so man-centered in our churches. If only we could get more people working, we keep saying. If only we had more people show up. If only we had 80% doing the work instead of 20%. If only, and Father, we keep looking at us. Father, forgive us for thinking that it's up to us. Father, forgive our leadership, all of us included, for falling into this man-centered focus of the Christian life. When your word is told, you told us at the beginning, before you went to the cross, apart from me, you can do nothing. Father, may we fix our eyes on you. Lord, you know what's going on in our lives. You know what it is that you're using to shape us and to mold us, and we'll get into that in the days to come. Father, may we in these times of going through shaping, not fall into the thinking that you're waiting on us to do a certain thing and then you'll bless, but that you're just waiting for us to trust you. And Father, you will then make clear what steps you want us to take by faith, but until then, may we rest like children and believe that our daddy's got it. And Lord, we've had an example of many women of faith. Some received their dead back to life. Others were tortured. Lord, you didn't tell us how it was all going to work out in this life, but you've promised that for eternity we will be rewarded and glorified with you. And that's hard for us to fathom. But for today, may the peace that passes understanding fill our hearts and our minds as we keep our eyes on you. In your name we pray. Amen.